0: Who is Michael, the archangel? So this is definitely a good question. And kind of like the 144,000, this is one that we should uh, be quite a bit humble about. When the Bible says this equals that, then we can say this equals that. And when the Bible isn't quite that clear, then we can make um, our our best educated guess based on the evidence we find in the Bible. So here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm not going to tell you who Michael is. But but I am going to give you some context for what the Bible describes Michael as, and then another night we'll have to come back to the subject, because it gets, it, it gets a little complicated if we, um, if we were to try to just break it down tonight, and it might distract from our subject. But I think that uh, it's fun to explore what the Bible says about this. And there, there are really two characters in Bible prophecy that are really significant, that, that are not human characters. Um, and, and they're given a name, right, and besides the devil. <laughs> so, we've got Gabriel, and we've got Michael. These two characters come up in prophecy, specifically in the books of Daniel and Revelation, and uh, you might remember Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel's an easy one to figure out because the Bible says he's an angel, and he comes several times. He comes to Daniel, and he's Kind of helping explain a prophecy and uh, making sense out of things. We found that in Daniel 8 specifically, and then also in Daniel 9, and then we see it in Daniel 10. We haven't gotten there yet, but um, he's in Daniel 10. And then um, we find him also in Luke, and Gabriel's the angel that comes to Zechariah and tells him about the conception of John the Baptist, and he comes to Mary Magdalene—not uh, I'm Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus—and tells her about the, um, the conception of Jesus, And so, it's like Gabriel seems to be closely tied to these prophecies about the Messiah. Um, So, Gabriel, he's easy. He's an angel. We know that. Um, And and there's this thing in Revelation where John… And we don't know if Gabriel is the one who is interacting with John because the Revelation doesn't identify the angel messenger that explains things to John. It just says that there's an angel. And so, Revelation 19.10 says… I fell down at his feet. Apparently there is this moment of awe and and he he falls down as though he's going to worship and the angel says to him, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So it's very clear in the Bible that angels are not worthy of worship. And we'll talk tonight about why God alone is worthy of worship and that's a really important uh, distinction. Angels are not worthy of worship. Angels are created beings. Angels are not God. So, that, that's really clear when we look at these two characters. Gabriel, he's an angel. We know that. We know he's not worthy of worship. Michael is a little bit different uh, figure. We don't know exactly uh, the details because the Bible doesn't give us every aspect of this. There's no backstory to Michael, um, but uh, we do know that, that he's not Daniel because in Daniel chapter 10, he's introduced as um, a, a prince, and he ends up fighting some prince of Persia. Um, in fact, Daniel 10.13, Gabriel admits to having trouble coming to Daniel when Daniel asks for um, understanding of a dream, and he says he was delayed some period of time by the prince of Persia. Who's the prince of Persia? Um, we don't know, but if he can delay Gabriel… A powerful angel of God, then probably he's not the king of Persia, right? He's not Darius or whoever it was at the time. Um, so this is more than likely a supernatural being. Maybe it's the devil. We don't know, but he's detained. Gabriel is detained by this character, and in Daniel ten thirteen, he says that when finally Michael came, um, he helped him out, and Gabriel was then able to to leave and and get to Daniel. Um, so, so, there's something that this is clearly not a human character. Michael isn't um, a person like Daniel, um, and he seems to be more uh, than Gabriel even, because Gabriel isn't able to defeat this um, evil prince, um, but the prince, Michael, is. Um, and uh, we read in Daniel 12, or Daniel 10.21 says that he's the, um, the chief prince um, even says that he is your prince talking to Daniel. And then in Daniel twelve one, it says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince. So, these are the the titles that he's given, and, uh, and that, that's kind of unique, right? We've got the prince of Persia, some spiritual being on the negative side, um, evil side, and then we've got this Michael character who is a chief prince, who's the prince of Daniel and his people, who is the the um, great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now, most scholars believe that Michael is a, um, an angel, a created being, but he's like the chief. He's the top of all the other angels. He's the head angel. Um, and that's certainly a position that, that um, you could take. But then you get to places like Jude, verse 9, that says that Michael is the archangel or archangel. Um, now, if you have an arch in your home, um, what's significant about an arch? It, 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 it's something you walk through, right? It goes over you. An arch, the word arch means um, over or above. Um, it could be uh, the greatest or the highest, the chief, the principal. Like the, the, the word arch as a prefix is, is something that sets this person over others. Um, So, when Michael is called this archangel, it's a a title that's unique to him. It only appears twice in the Bible, once without a name, um, in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, where it says that um, God will come with the trumpet of God, or the, yeah, the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel, and the dead will rise, right? So, we have the trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel, the dead rise. Michael is the only one who's called an archangel. Um, now, some would say that there's multiple archangels. So I looked online, and you can find seven of them, but I want to tell you this. Not a single one is in the Bible, and what we want to do is find truth from the Bible, and if it's outside the Bible, well, it needs to agree with the Bible to begin with, uh, but we should, we should stick to what the Bible tells us about, the, about itself, Um, Otherwise, we get into some murky waters. So, just sticking with what the Bible says, there's only one individual that's given this title of archangel. Now, some might remember that Lucifer is called a covering cherub. This is a different title. Um, The covering cherub, if you remember, was over the the Ark of the Covenant in the, the sanctuary in Israel and a covering cherub literally put their wings over the the mercy seat, the presence of God there in the, in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Um, so presumably when Lucifer is called an, a covering cherub, he is one of those cherubs in, in the earthly sanctuary. There were two, however many there were in, in heaven, we don't know, but um, presumably he's one of those cherubs who… who Covers the presence of God, which would mean at least in proximity, he is the closest angel to God. Whether he has a leadership role over any of the other angels, we don't know. The Bible doesn't specify. Until Lucifer rebels and a third of the angels are drawn away and fall uh, from heaven and are kicked out, right? And it's at this point that the devil is the leading evil angel. And so it's uh, possible that he was a leader of angels even before. And the fact that he had enough influence to bring a third of God's God's angels with him would suggest that that's probably true. Um, So, the covering cherub is maybe a leadership role. Um, But Lucifer wasn't an archangel. He was a covering cherub. So, there's a distinction here. And Michael is the only one who's given this title of archangel. Archangel. Um, the the word ark I mentioned means principal or greatest or chief or highest, and he is called the chief prince. Um, and then uh, angel. The word angel in Greek literally means messenger. Hebrew is a very similar concept, messenger of God. Um, now, to be certain. Um, messengers of God that come from heaven are different stuff than you and I. We talked about that another night and pointed out that we are made lower than the angels, and so there's, there, we're made of something different. There's a spiritual being that um, exists in a little bit different way than we do, according to the Bible. So um, angels, heavenly angels, are definitely Uh, more than just a messenger. You probably wouldn't want to call me an angel, even if I'm a messenger of God, right? Um, I don't really fit. But um, the the literal meaning of angel is messenger of God. And so an archangel would be the chief messenger. And then the word Michael, the, the meaning of that word is who is like God, which could be a question like who is like God or who is like God, period. And so, if you put these together, um, the the name and title would be the chief messenger who is like God. That's what the Bible indicates about Michael. Now, um, the last place we find Michael is in Revelation twelve seven, where John says that war breaks out in heaven, and Michael and it, literally, it it specifies Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels. And you've got these two groups of people or two groups of angels. There's the, the, the dragon or the devil and all the angels that follow him, and they're called his angels. And then you've got Michael and all the angels that follow him, and they're called his angels. And so you've got Revelation 12, 7, the last place we find Michael, uh, pitted against Satan in a head-to-head battle. And it's the same in Jude, where he fights the devil over Moses' body. It's the same in Daniel, where he fights against um, this prince of Persia um, on behalf of Daniel and God's people. And there's this, there's this theme of Michael fighting on behalf of God's people against the devil. Now, um, this, is, this is a subject that we could go into further. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Um, there's lots of different opinions about who Michael is um, and, and what I'd like to suggest is that uh, you do a little bit of study, and if you've got a, a question or a specific verse that you think adds to the story, drop it in the question box, and, uh, and, and we'll come back to this subject another time, and if you want to do a bit of study on this subject and explore it a little bit further, there's one more piece to the puzzle that I think is worth considering, and uh, so do this a search, maybe on... Uh, the blueletterbible.com or some similar um, tool, and, and do a search for angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord. Um, and keep in mind that angels refuse worship. Do, do that search, and, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk about it more, and it's going to be fascinating, I think. So, um, there is one more thing we get to do. Um, we, we get to give something away tonight. So this is called The Sign, written by Sean Boonstra. Um, You might be finding a theme about Sean Boonstra. The the Discovering Revelation is uh, a series by Voice of Prophecy, and Sean Boonstra is the head of Voice of Prophecy, um, a radio program that I've mentioned before. Sean wrote this book called The Sign, and uh, he asked this question, does it seem like there's a lot of busyness and a lot of noise in our lives? And he suggests that he doesn't think it's a... um, an accident. He thinks that there's some intentional, nefarious reason that our lives are pushed to such a busy frenzy. And, uh, and so he, he has this, this little book that talks about something that God offers his people, joy, rest, and peace. Um, so it's called The Sign. There's a few copies. If you want one, grab one. If you want to drop a donation in the box to cover the cost, that'd be great. Who do we get to give this away to tonight? I have this uh, slip with someone's name on it, and the name is Michelle Becker. All right, Michelle. Here you go. Okay. Take that to Michelle, and thank you so much, Art. I hear there's one more exciting thing that I forgot to mention. There's something special. Oh, yes. We're going to have a a special music at the end of our message tonight. So um, if I bore you completely, you'll be at least revived by the special music at the end. (laughs) Okay, so um, tonight our subject is Revelation's sign of God. I'm not working. Aha, there we go. Revelation's sign of God. Bible prophecy talks about something that sets God's people apart from the rest of the world at the end of time. Something unique, and tonight we get to start exploring what that is. And I guarantee even if you've been through something like this before, you probably will learn something new. On Sunday night, Revelation's forgotten history. A lot of people, most Christians think the Bible says something, and we're going to explore and see if it really does say that. On Tuesday night, remember Mondays and Thursdays we have off, on Tuesday night a river runs through it, a train of thought that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and people who understand this thing and have accepted this um, idea, um, they unanimously report that there is a greater peace in their lives as a result. So, you'll want to be there for that. On Wednesday night, Babylon rising. This is when we finally get to to jump into Revelation 13 and understand this beast that comes crawling out of the sea. Who is the beast? What is he about? And uh, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to tell me, and it'll be pretty clear. On Friday night, um, what happens the minute after you die? And don't be mistaken, this is a subject in Revelation. The, the idea of what happens after death is clearly connected to end-time prophecy, and we'll explore why on Friday night. Um, then on Saturday morning, remember we're, um, we're going to be finished, completely done with this, Saturday night, May 29, just so you know, and we'll have gone through all the subjects we're going to go through, but to fit in um, everything, we're going to do two morning meetings, so Saturday, May, um, May 22, We'll have a morning meeting at 11 o'clock right here, and it's going to be called Secrets to Answered Prayer. And it's not a gimmick. There is a key in the Bible that will guarantee that all of your prayers are answered. So you'll want to come for, for finding that out from the Bible. On Saturday night, God's strange act. Before everything is finished in Revelation, the Bible describes something that seems horrific. And many atheists have pointed to this thing in the Bible and said, if that's the God that you believe in... I'm glad I don't believe in God. And I think when you come, what you'll find is that the Bible's description of God is beautiful enough to turn an atheist into a Christian. You'll want to see that Saturday night. Then Sunday, um, there's a, a, a point in the Bible that describes a desolate earth, and this one is the subject of the millennium. So if you've been wondering when I'm going to get into that, it'll be Sunday night next week. Tonight, Revelation's sign of God. Now, we've been together a few nights, and uh, we've talked about a few things. Uh, let's, let's do a little quiz. Is that all right? A little quiz. Let's see if you can remember a few things. In the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, what did the head of gold represent? Just shout it out. Babylon. Babylon. Excellent. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And then uh, what about the legs of iron? What did that represent? Rome, excellence, the Roman Empire, and then um, how about Daniel chapter eight when we saw that goat with a notable horn? What was the goat and the horn representative of? Okay, Alexander was the horn, and Greece was the goat. Excellence. Um, all right, true or false? God's law did not exist before Mount Sinai. False. In fact, we found that Abraham is said in the book of Genesis to have kept God's commandments long before Mount Sinai, uh, that Mount Sinai experience. Okay. It's time for prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we explore your word, we want, uh, we want you to speak to us. Uh, please open our hearts. Give us your spirit and give us understanding like you promised that you would. I pray that you would uh, anoint my lips with uh, your spirit so that I can speak truth, not just stuff that I believe, but things that your word expresses about you. And I pray that you'd be glorified tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're in the very heart of the book of Revelation. We studied Revelation 12, and that's where war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the devil, or the dragon, and his angels, and the, uh, the, the evil angels are cast out. What's the issue that led to that war? What's the, the big thing that, that brought that war on in heaven? It was, it was this Lucifer guy who was so full of himself, Right? pride and arrogance and, well, the Bible says in Ezekiel that he was corrupted because of his beauty. He thought a little bit too highly of how pretty he was. And Isaiah tells us that he coveted God's throne. Why aren't I sitting on that throne, he thought. But you and I both know that Lucifer could never sit on God's throne. At least I hope you know that. Um, But why? Why can't Lucifer sit on God's throne? Why could it never be possible for Lucifer to sit in the place of God? Ah, good. He was a created being. Only God is worthy of our worship. And uh, it it doesn't matter if Lucifer is beautiful or charismatic. It doesn't matter how many people follow Lucifer. It just doesn't matter because He was created and not the Creator. According to the Bible, worship is only something that God deserves, And, and it's because He's the only one who's worthy. Revelation 4, the 24 elders fall down and they worship God, and here's what they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for, and this is the reason, you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. This is the, the basic reason that God is God, because He's the Creator. Uh, sometimes we, we struggle to grasp this, I think, because we have this well, I mean, do you remember before you were born? If you can't remember before you were born, then, then um, likely, like, the, the span of your existence has no beginning in your mind, right? You can't remember the day you were born. You probably can't remember when you were one. It's just a long, long time ago, right? I saw pictures, and I know I was born. But other than that, like, it's possible for us to presume that, that we are self-existent, that uh, we, we made ourselves. I mean, it would be stupid to believe that because you could see people born all the time and you understand how it works, but um, it, it's possible. Think about Lucifer. Is it possible for Lucifer to have, have had this moment and be like, I, I don't remember ever not being. I must always have been. Maybe I wasn't created, right? You can forgive him, right, for, for maybe thinking that he and God were about the same, But it's just not the case. God created Lucifer. And so the bottom line is, what sets God apart from you and I is that He is the creator. He is the source of life. And we are the created, the ones receiving that gift of life. And you'll find this reason all throughout the Bible. Psalms 96.5, it says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Uh, just go to any of the gods of Greece or Rome or Egypt. Um, go to India or China. Uh, go to the islands. Go to anywhere, and uh, and what you find are created gods, right? They're, they're the gods of the elements. They're the gods of the, the um, heavenly bodies. They're the gods of animals, or they're the gods of of, of fashioned trees, you know, where they've carved an idol or fashioned metal or fashioned stone. In every single case, these are things that are created but worshiped as God. But God, the God of heaven, is the creator of all those things. The difference between the God of the Bible and every other God is that the God of the Bible is the creator. This is the foundational issue and probably the biggest issue in the Bible. And it's not an accident that uh, the theory of origins is a very hotly debated subject. Uh, you look at the, and even unfortunately in some Christian circles, you look at the subject of evolution. And, and what it's doing is saying, there can't be a God, therefore let's find some other alternative for how things started. And uh, from that, what we call a worldview, from that lens of work looking through the, the, the evidence in our world. Um, they come up with all kinds of different ideas about the age of the earth or the way things happened, etc. Um, but it's, it's starting with the there's no creator assumption. If you allow for the possibility of the creator, to be honest, most of the evidence we find in the world Um, confirms the Creator. And all the stuff that we're not sure what it is yet, um, it it doesn't make any sense to evolutionary science either. So um, what we find are confirmations of a Creator. Jeremiah 10, 11, and 12 says, Thus shall you say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion. It's something that comes up again and again and again in the Bible. You can only legitimately worship the God who creates, the one who is the creator. And that's the reason the Ten Commandments forbid the worship of other gods. Because what other God is the creator? And think about it. When God says to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, He is not saying that um, He is, is um, this narcissistic being who just demands your love. When he says, don't have any other gods before me, it's not because he's selfish that he's saying it. It's because there is no such thing as another god. It's because that when we worship God, our creator, we are ennobled and, and, and we are in the, the, the place that he designed us to be. And, and, and it's good for us when we recognize him as our creator and bad for us when we don't. And so for our sake, he has made this law. Only worship me. I'm the only creator. In Acts 4:24, um, we see this. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, "Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them." This is not a small issue. This is really the ultimate issue in the book of Revelation. We've talked about this idea of there being a war. There was a war in heaven. And when you look at the the reason for this war, it's that one guy decides he is worthy of worship. He wants to sit on the throne of God. The other guy, God himself, is the one who has the legitimate claim of worship. The war in heaven was about worship. And when we get all the way down to Revelation and this end time war scenario, guess what we're looking at? We're looking at another war over worship. And so when we look at this, who is worthy? And and the word worship. We get this English word worship and you take the etymology of that word and go back and try to find it in, you know, in ancient Eng- English and French and Latin and back to Greek and you know, even go back all the way to Hebrew. And what you'll find is the, the fundamental idea in worship is worthy. You don't worship somebody unless they are worthy of worship. And, and so the, the demand from God to worship is, is simply from the uh, idea that he is worthy of that. The devil seized or failed to seize God's throne, but what he tries to do instead is he tries to distract us and get us away from thinking about it, um, from, from worshiping him, and he, he wants us to get, well, honestly, he doesn't care if we worship him the devil. I mean, it's, if, if the devil gets our worship, he'd probably be happy with that, but he doesn't care. As long as we're not worshiping the God of creation, he's fine. So he gets us distracted and worshiping all kinds of other gods. And certainly some people do worship Lucifer, the Luciferians, and um, you might think, oh, those are really bad people. But uh, to be honest, what's the difference between worshiping Lucifer and worshiping a tree? They're both created beings and we're both distracted from God, Right who you worship other than God is insignificant. It's when you don't worship God, that's Lucifer's success, and that's what he's fighting for. So, let's go back in history tonight to a moment when everything changed for the Christian church. The Bible predicted, you might remember, a falling away in the Christian church, a period of compromise. And in the year 312, even though he was a pagan who was worshiping the god Apollo, the Roman emperor Constantine claimed that the Christian god gave him victory um, at this this bridge here, and uh, that that it was under this sign that he conquered uh, Rome. And, uh, I mean, he does kind of accept Christianity, uh, we don't have a ton of evidence for this, except that at the very end of his life, he was baptized. The last rites were performed there. Um, he kind of is favorable towards Christianity throughout his um, his reign, um, but uh, what, what ends up happening is people, uh, because he kind of allows it to become popular, people begin to join the Christian church for expediency because it seems to be something that the, the emperor likes, and so political expediency or social um, connections cause a lot of people to just kind of change allegiance from some pagan god to these Christian gods. And all kinds of interesting things begin to happen in this time. This mixture of people in the church, authentic Bible-believing Christians and people that are just there for the political gain of, uh, of it, um, end up, they end up mixing and, and causing all kinds of challenges. And historically, we know that This compromise around 300 years after the apostles um, began during this time. Uh, And and the compromise was pretty significant. All kinds of things from pagan religions began to be called Christian. Um, Have you ever wondered why we bring flowers to a funeral? Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, but back in the day, they brought flowers to a funeral because. In the pagan custom, they thought that, um, that, that you would get a better standing in the afterlife if the gods thought that you were popular on earth. And so you fill the, the room with flowers, and the gods think that, well, this is, must be a popular guy. I'm going give to him, give him a good spot in the afterlife. Well, this comes into the Christian church, and no problem. Please bring flowers to your funeral. It's a nice thing to do. There's, there's nothing wrong about that, but it's, it's one of these customs that gets drawn into the Christian culture. Um, and, and then uh, there's the ancient Babylonians and the Assyrians who had this thing called the Ashtoreth pole. And the Ashtoreth pole was this um, Semitic goddess of fertility. And uh, you can imagine what the, the pole represents when you're thinking about fertility. Um, now, if a young couple wanted to have a baby, what the young man would do is he would go and he would carve out a piece of this Ashtoreth pole and take it to, um, back, back home for good luck And uh, if they got pregnant and had a baby, then uh, somebody might come and say, oh, that baby, he's a chip off the old Asterith pole. And and today we say it, the chip off the old block, right? There's all kinds of interesting things that come from pagan culture into the church during this time. And some of them aren't bad, all kinds of artifacts of this. In fact, uh, did you know that the idea of sitting down in a worship service comes from Babylon. It was never the case that the Israelites would sit down in the temple. Um, they might kneel down, they might prostrate themselves on the ground, they might stand as they, as they do a service, but they didn't have seats until the Israelites went to Babylon. Now, it's, there's no problem with sitting down in a worship service, um, but from the synagogues in Babylon, because there was no temple anymore, they started to sit, and then they, they, they brought that from the, the pagan culture. Again, no problem. It's not like sitting is bad. Um, unless your brain doesn't work while you sit, then you should stand. Feel free to, if you need to walk around to understand me, that's fine. Um, but then, then there's all kinds of other things. Uh, let's see. Uh, for example, the um, in the pagan culture, the names of the the, the days of the week were connected to um, solar, um, you know, the, the stuff in the in the sky. So the sun and the moon, um, and and that's you know Sunday, Monday, and then um, the five. Um, the, the five planets that we can see in, in, our, um, in, in the sky uh, with the naked eye. So that would be, um, you know, Woden's Day, Thor's Day, you know, etc. So we get these names from the celestial beings, and, and it's not necessarily bad. It's harmless unless you're worshiping those gods. Um, that's, a, that's a different problem. Um, but, but nobody is doing these things to impress pagan gods, right? We just have these things kind of in our culture, Um, that came from these um, pagan backgrounds. But, But some things that crept into our Christian faith are not harmless. Some things are actually a violation of God's express will. For example, where do you think we learned to torture people and burn people? Was that something that the Christian church found in God's Word? No. No, they brought that from the pagan culture in the Roman Empire, and they just decided to apply that to whoever didn't agree with the church, and uh, things kind of got bad. Um, and what about um, the, uh, the kind of thinking... I'm sorry. Um, I had to skip over my notes there. F- forgot where I was. <laughs> now, let's see. There's uh, another thing here. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about this falling away. Um, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except where there come a following away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So the Bible predicted that uh, eventually someone would come along um, to do the same thing that Lucifer did back in heaven, a falling away. Somebody would worship himself. And uh, that's a pretty significant difference. We've got worshipping God the Creator and worshiping themselves, Lucifer, and this lawless one, this man of sin. Um, And then in verse 7, it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Oops, I missed part of that that text. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, this problem can be traced all the way back to the time of the apostles. It's certainly something that um, Paul describes as this mystery of lawlessness, and we talked about that last night, the idea of lawlessness. Lawlessness. Um, it's a problem he describes as growing and growing and growing until this, this uh, man of sin appears on the earth. So tonight, we're going to pick up that story and look at this idea of lawlessness a little bit and, and understand one of the most amazing prophecies in the book of Revelation. Uh, remember, Revelation is describing a group of people who are standing on this Mount Zion with the Lamb of God, and, and what are some characteristics? What do they do? What do they have on their forehead? They have the Father's name on their forehead, right? And uh, where do they go? They follow the Lamb. And, and when they talk, what kinds of things come out of their mouth? Are they deceitful? They're without guile or without deceit. Like, so, they, these are they're people that speak truthful words. Um, so, we've studied a bit of that. They have the Father's name, and according to uh, verse 12, Revelation 14, verse 12, they keep the commandments of God. Um, So we've already studied that, but tonight we want to look at what these people preach, because it says they don't have any deceit in their mouth. What is it that they do have in their mouth? We find that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, and it says, "'I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth.'" to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship. Now here's that word. Why do we worship God? It's going to tell us. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. So right here, in one of the most important parts of Revelation, in one of the most important prophecies at the end of time, with one of the most important groups of people the Bible has ever described, the Bible says worship God because he made. That's not an insignificant thing. It's not a coincidence that that's there. They're using the language of creation. And if they're using the language of creation, it would make sense that we just take a little journey back to Genesis chapter one. And, and let's just see, what is it that they're talking about? Right here at the beginning, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not Lucifer, not anybody else. God created, just God. That's all there was. Nothing existed except God. The Bible positions God as the self-existent, ever-living one. He's always been, always will be. He's the Alpha, the Omega. Everything that is exists because of Him, according to the Bible. So, if there's one part of the Bible if there's one passage the devil hates and wants to obscure, I would suggest that this is it. He wants to undermine God's position as creator. Because if he can drop God down a few notches, then the Lucifer looks a lot better. Can Lucifer bring himself up to being a creator? No. So he has to bring God down to where he is in order to have a fair fight. Um, and because. Lucifer just isn't worthy of worship. So, he wants to obscure this. This is a problem for him. And is it any wonder that we have such a heated debate on the subject of origins? The fact that we have evolution, I believe, is a a result of the devil trying to obscure this fact in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Who is worthy of worship? The rise of the Darwin and, uh, the rise of Darwin and the evolutionary theory is, um, it's interesting because Darwin published a paper um, on the subject of evolution, uh, introducing this idea in the year 1844. Do you remember back when we talked about Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 and how we established that timeline, the 2,300 years beginning in 457 BC and ending when? 1844. And it's this time period that says the time of the end is from 1844 on. This, this thing is uh, wrapping up. There's nothing else happening except Jesus' return. And it's right here at the end of time, that uh, when, at, in the time of the end, I should say, according to the Bible. Um, it's in this moment that Satan injects this false idea that distracts our minds from the fact that God created I don't think that that is, I don't think that's an accident. I think it's something that's intentional. Now, uh, the book of Genesis says that God created everything in six days. On the first day, he divided the light from the dark, and uh, that by itself was pretty astonishing. Scientists struggle to understand the nature of light um, I preached a sermon a, a, a while back about the idea of light, and it's so fascinating to think about it. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? What exactly is it? We don't even actually know the speed of light. We've had a, we have a, a supposition about it, but if you try to look at the speed of light, guess what? You won't be able to measure it. It's a theory, not a fact. So, interesting. We, we can't even figure it out, but God separates the light from the darkness. He makes the light. And then on the second day, Oops! On the second day, he makes the firmament, firmament separates the, the water from dry land. On the third day, I'm sorry, on the third day, he separates the water from the dry land. On the fourth day, God develops the concept of light and dark a little bit further by making these celestial bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars. On the fifth day, he went back to the sky and the waters, made the fish and the birds. On the sixth day, he make, goes back to the land, makes the, the animals, and then finally he finishes with the human race. And the astonishing thing is that God just speaks this stuff into existence, with the exception of man, whom He forms with His hands and, and kisses with the kiss of life. But um, He speaks all these things, He forms man, and then creation is finished, right? Not, not quite, if we keep reading. See, in the Bible, the Bible didn't have breaks like we have chapters and verses now but that wasn't introduced until hundreds of years uh, actually thousands of years after after the bible actually got started written um after the writers got started writing Um, so when we look at this we have this nice division there at the end of chapter one and we could say oh that's the end of creation but it's not the chapter divisions take those out you keep reading and this is what you'll find in genesis chapter two Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. So God speaks all these things into existence, forms man, and then he does one more thing, one more act in this week of creation. And what does he do? He rested. And why would God rest? Does God need to rest? Does God get tired? The Bible makes it pretty clear in Isaiah forty twenty eight that that can't be the reason. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. If he can speak the universe into existence, it's not a big stressor for him to create things. He doesn't need to rest from it. Uh, so if he doesn't take the day off because he's tired after creation, why does he do it? Well, let me see. How many of you have children? Yeah? Um, do you ever, did, did you ever have to kind of show your kids how to do something? You know, you, you, you could tell them what to do and stuff, but, but sometimes you just have to walk alongside them and do it with them. Uh, like, uh, for example my daughter did not really like sleeping when she was a newborn. She had reflux. And so she'd wake up in the middle of the night and I had the duty of going and getting her and bringing her to my wife. Um, I'd change her diaper whatever was needed and then bring her to my wife and she'd nurse her and then I would take her back to bed. And I would do this because um, Joelle was up all the time and and so it was my responsibility to make sure that the baby got back to sleep and uh, allow her to sleep too. Well, the problem was she didn't like sleeping. She had this reflex problem. And, uh, and so I would, I would spend, before we figured out what exactly it was, I would spend an hour, or sometimes two hours, bouncing this baby in my arms. You, you, you've done that before? You kind of jiggle them, uh, <laughs> right? And you're just shaking them. You, you can't do this. That doesn't work. Uh, um, you, you have to just jiggle and you kind of jiggle pretty hard, and you shush them, and, and apparently you're supposed to do that about as loud as the ocean is, um, so shushing is not a quiet thing, um, and so I'm doing this, I'm shaking, and I'm shushing, and I'm shaking, and I'm shushing, and, and, and you know what? I would fall asleep before she would. I would wake up jiggling her, <laughs> and, and sometimes, sometimes kids just need somebody to show them what is what. When Maxwell was born, Joel would go in and, and lay with him, and try to get him to go to sleep. And you know what? She would fall asleep before he would too. And I wonder if maybe God is doing the same thing for Adam and Eve. He's modeling something that he built into us as a need. He's modeling rest. And, and notice that he, he says these, these two things. On the seventh day, God rested, God blessed, and God sanctified that day. Uh, and, and when that word sanctified is used, it's, it means that it's set aside for some holy use. So the implements in the sanctuary are set aside for a holy use. The particular incense that's used in the sanctuary is set aside for a holy use. It's sanctified. Um, and, and those are very important things. When God sanctifies something, it's, it's not insignificant. And in this moment, he sanctifies this seventh day. And it shows up, it's so significant, it shows up in in what we talked about last night as the moral law. And the moral law, remember, is part of God's character, it's part of who he is. And and so it, it existed from, well, as long as God has existed, and it will exist as long as God will exist, because it's part of who he is, and it's an expression of his character. And so we find this right there in the center of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do no work, you nor your sons, nor your daughter, nor your man male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. God is saying, I want you to rest. Just let me ask you a question. If your boss said, um, tell you what, um, don't worry, take the rest of the day, we'll give you full pay, but go home and rest. Would you be mad at your boss? There's something nice about being told to rest. Like, no, don't stress, you don't have to do the dishes, honey, just go and rest. How many of you would like it if your husbands would say that, right? Mm-hmm. Resting, it's, it's a gift, it's something that God says, I want you to do this, I want you to rest. And why? Why is it that we're called to do this rest? Why is the Sabbath something significant? For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed, or that word sanctified, same idea, hallowed it. So the fourth commandment says the same thing as the book of Genesis. It's not a new story. Um, God did these three things. He rested, he blessed, and he sanctified or hallowed the day. And uh, it's at the very heart of the law of God, which makes me think that, it's a reminder that God is the one who is worthy of worship. And think about it. In, in the first command, God says, don't worship any other gods but me. Now, he points out that I'm the God who, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But remember, it's not very long after this that the Israelites make an idol, and Aaron turns to this idol and says, behold, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Was that true? No. So, if God had simply said, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, don't have any other gods besides me, we can quickly see that that is not sufficient to keep people's minds focused on who he really is. They could have found any number of gods and claimed that they were the ones that brought them out of the land of Egypt. So, right here in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God identifies who he is, and he says, I'm the God who made things. I'm the God who said, please rest. The biggest issue in the Bible, worship God as creator, is right here in the Ten Commandments. Is it possible that this commandment is one of the keys that actually unlocks the prophecies in the book of Revelation? I think it is. Let me show you what I mean, though. Let's go back and look at some things we've already studied. We've already seen that God's commandments are very important to God's people, especially in the last days. The Bible says that God actually writes those laws in their hearts. Hebrews tells us that. Um, we've seen that the devil is angry with the people of God who keep the commandments of God um, and have the faith of Jesus. And the Bible shows us that the people on Mount Zion are the ones who keep the commandments and they have the testimony of Jesus in Revelation fourteen twelve. So, we, we've seen also that this group of people that has, have the Father's name in their forehead have a message in their mouths, and it includes, worship Him who made. You see how all these things are tied together? The Bible says a group of people at the very end of time would be trumpeting a message for all the world to hear, worship God as Creator. That's not an insignificant component of prophecy. And there's no question what John is pointing to. The language of Revelation 14 is the language of the fourth commandment. It's the language of creation. The Bible says that God set apart the seventh day. Uh, So, um, the question would be, which day is the seventh day? It's not a complex question. Um, it's, it's Saturday. Just look at a calendar. Um, you see it Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Now, some business calendars will start on Monday just because it's convenient to throw the weekend at the end, but it's been universally known uh, Sunday through, through Saturday um, is the week. Now, the Jews, they didn't, use, they didn't use names. That was the Roman invention, thanks to them. Uh, but the Jews, they used numbers, and it was from creation on First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, preparation day, Sabbath, the seventh day, right? That's, that's the, the progression that the Jews used. But in the 21st century, in the Western world especially, which day do most people observe as a day of worship? The first day or a sun, uh, Sunday. Um, why? Why do we use a different day? Um, that's easy, some people will tell you. It's because the Sabbath was for the Jews, right? And uh, they observed the seventh day, but Christians keep the first day instead. Um, But if you think about that, it raises a few questions, maybe more questions than it answers. If the Sabbath was just for the Jews, then why do we find it in the Ten Commandments, the moral law, instead of in the ceremonial law, the one that Moses wrote down, um, all pointing to Jesus and and sitting beside the ark? Why is it in the moral law, the the, the law that the Bible says is eternal? And uh, another question, if it was just for the Jews, why was it for Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve, were they Jews? No, the Jews are just the, the children of The children of Judah, that's where we get Jew, or if we want to go back a little bit farther, Israelite, and they're the children of Israel, who is, uh, well, the grandson of Abraham, who's a long, long, long way removed from Adam and Eve. So, Adam and Eve aren't Jews. Um, Well, if it's uh, God blessed this Sabbath day, set it apart for holy use all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Um, He sanctified it even before we had ever sinned, so that means it can't be part of the ceremonial law because the ceremonial law was designed to point us towards the Redeemer, the one who would save us from sin. So, this isn't an issue of sin. Um, It it wouldn't be part of the ceremonial law. And if the Sabbath was um, found in Eden, and and, oh, look at this one in Mark 2.27, 27. Um, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. If it's in Eden, what's the purpose of the Sabbath? It's, it's a benefit for us. It's a gift for us, the Bible says. The Sabbath was made for us on our behalf. Here's another question. Why does the fourth commandment begin with the word remember? It's the only commandment that does Why? Why is it significant that it says, remember? Could it be that it's pointing back to that ancient history, back to the time of creation? I think it is. And it's it's really a lot clearer when you read the whole commandment. When God says, remember, could it be that he is um, saying that this is the one commandment we're likely to forget? The one commandment that would take the focus away from the creatorship and put it on whatever else, whoever else wants to put it on. Why is it that we tend to forget this one? I think it's because the fourth commandment is specifically designed to help us remember the creator, to help us remember the one who is the center of this law, whose character is the thing that creates this law and who created us. If the human, human race had remembered this one commandment, I think that we would have a lot less debate over the question of origins. We wouldn't have nearly as much confusion. Today we teach kids that human life is an accident, and uh, even though we know scientifically it's impossible for life to come from non-life, we can't make it happen. We've got no evidence that it ever could happen but we don't want there to be a creator. And so we insert some other theory. And if we had remembered the Sabbath day to keep it holy because God is the creator, we probably wouldn't have, we probably wouldn't have been forgetting our origins nearly as easily. Now just think about this whole evolution thing. Um, what are the odds that life was created from nothing? What are the odds? Well, if you take a gymnasium like this one and you fill it with dice... And then you put a bomb in the middle of it and explode those dice all over the county. Um, the odds of every single one of those dice falling on a six, with a six up, right, are better than life coming from nothing. Um, so that, that's that's not very good odds. And, and when you think about it, it, does it make more sense that a, an intelligent being created or that some random accident happened? The more logical thing is that there is a creator. The issue is really simple. Lucifer can't stand for us to be thinking about God, and so he creates alternatives for us to, to focus our attention elsewhere. And, and one of the most significant things that we can do to remember the creator God is to do what he said, remember the Sabbath day, because he created. The big issue in the Bible is who deserves worship? Who deserves our worship? And and the whole theme of prophecy, who deserves our worship? Who is worthy? And, And the whole reason that the devil hates the law of God is because the law points to God's worthiness. He alone is the one worthy of our worship. And right in the middle of the law is a permanent reminder that he's the only one that has the right to be on that throne. Satan could never take the place of God because he never created. Have you ever wondered why we have a seven-day week? I mean, we have the, the seasons, we have the, the months because of the moon, we have the seasons because of the, the sun, right? We have a yearly cycle because of, of the solar, Um the, the, the orbiting around the sun. So where do we get the week? What, what kind of uh, celestial thing brings the week about? Well, the only thing that we have is creation. Somebody should really ask me about the ostrutions and, and then the, how the Romans adopted their eight-day market week. Um, and, and that's an interesting discussion of the Julian calendar in the Roman time. Um, it doesn't pertain to the seven-day week, but it's interesting. If you, wanna, if you want me to tell you about it, um, throw a question in the box there, and I'll do that. But why do we have the week? Why do we have the seven-day cycle? It's because God created in six days and rested on the seventh. That's the pattern that established that seven-day cycle, and throughout all history, we can't find anything that would break that weekly pattern. Um, but now we have, have to ask the, the big question, if the seventh day is Saturday, then why do we worship on Sunday? Uh, well, you could, uh, you could say, well, it's because Jesus changed the day, right? But look at Luke chapter 4, and notice what Jesus did as a pattern. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Notice that it says it's ha- his habit, his custom was to come to the sanctuary or the temple uh, synagogue on, the, on Sabbath, and that's his pattern. And if you check the Bible very carefully, you'll never find Jesus ever doing anything differently than that and, or, or saying that anybody else should do differently than that. Not ever in the whole Bible will you find Jesus doing that. Um, but again, don't take my word for it. Go back to the Bible, look for yourself, explore it, and see if you can find that. Now listen to something that Jesus said when he was warning the disciples about this future time. We know today to be 70 AD because it's when the, temple, the, the um, uh, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. And it's here in Matthew 24, verse 20. And pray your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So Jesus, looking forward some 40 years after he would give his life, is saying that they would continue to keep the Sabbath. And he's talking to his disciples, to Christians. If you search the Bible, you'll never find a place where Jesus changed this this command. Um, and, And you know why he didn't expect any change? Why he didn't think there might be a change? It's because it's part of the moral law. It's not a ceremonial thing that he fulfilled it's part of the moral law that's part of his character. God doesn't change. Human beings change, but God stays the same forever. So, all right, maybe Jesus didn't change the Sabbath, but I'm pretty sure his disciples did, right? Um, Well, let's look at that. Luke 23, 56. This is Jesus, upon Jesus' death, this is what the disciples are doing. They returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the command. Okay, so maybe they changed it after the resurrection because this is before the resurrection. Um, So look at Acts chapter 13. And it says, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. What day were they worshiping? On the Sabbath day. Uh, But that was the synagogue, that was for the Jews, Um, okay, that may be plausible, except just a few verses later, it says, the Jews went out of the synagogue, and the Gentiles begged that those words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So if there was a time for the disciples to say, well, actually, it's not Sabbath anymore. It's Sunday. This would be the time. He's not talking to Jews anymore, but he doesn't. Um, In verse 44, it says, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. If you go back and read the book of Acts, read the whole thing, and they worship on the Sabbath day. Paul never says that they should switch to a different day. And, and this is the missionary to the Gentiles. This is the guy that says, don't put any other burden on them except these few things that, that does away with all these traditions and, and ceremonies that were fulfilled at the cross. But he doesn't seem to change this one. In Acts eighteen it says He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And and this is a place where the Bible says that that Paul stayed a good while, maybe a year or more, and in that whole time he doesn't mention any other any change in this pattern of worship. There are eighty more times that Paul is mentioned keeping the Sabbath eighty. And, and and there's not a single instance of him worshiping on a different day or changing that um, that, that worship law. Uh, here's an interesting verse. Acts sixteen thirteen on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. This isn't even in a synagogue. This isn't a place that, that um, has very little Jewish presence. It's Philippi, um, kind of the outskirts, the first entrance of the gospel into, into Western Europe. And, um, and, and you know what Paul does? He goes by the river where some people were praying, and he does this on the Sabbath day. But surely they changed the Sabbath in honor of the resurrection, you might say, if that was true, you'd think that the Bible might mention it, but it doesn't. In fact, the, the Bible gives two memorials of Jesus' death and resurrection. The first is communion, uh, and, and which replaces that um, um, Passover worship experience, right? Communion. And then the second would be baptism. And Romans 6 describes that and says that just like Jesus was baptized, um, died and was buried, we go down into the watery grave of baptism, and like Jesus came up from the tomb, we come up from the water, um, a new creature in Christ. That's Paul's way of thinking about it. Okay, so it's the seventh day, but it doesn't really matter which day you choose. Uh, there's a story in the Bible that I'd like to, to just uh, throw out there to see if you think it has a connection. A guy named Jacob, a young man, um, ends up fleeing from his home because he'd made his brother mad and was fearful for his life. And when he finally ends up stopping, he's a long way from home, and uh, he stops by this well where a beautiful young woman named Rachel happens to be tending her sheep. And, and Jacob helps her get the, the stone away and, and um, feeds or uh, waters her sheep and everything. And uh, this romance begins, and Jacob loves Rachel. And so it's not very long um, that Jacob is working for Rachel's dad, and he asks for her hand in marriage, and and uh, and he says, "Sure, work for me for seven years for the bride price." That was a the thing they did back then, um, and uh, and then you can marry her. So seven years goes by. The time of the wedding is there, and uh, and Jacob, uh, you know, there's uh, festivities and stuff, and he might not have whether it was what she wore or. Maybe he was a bit inebriated, I don't know. But the night comes for them um, to to be together. And uh, the next morning he wakes up and the person who's laying next to him is not Rachel. It's her older sister Leah. And so Jacob goes to Laban, Rachel's father, and says, What did you do to me? Oh, it's customary that the older uh, daughter get married first. And and you might imagine him, the Bible doesn't say this, you might imagine him saying, they're both girls, they're both sisters, what's the big difference? Well, the Bible says that Jacob loved Rachel. He didn't love Leah. Not that she wasn't a lovely girl or whatever, it had nothing to do with that. He loved Rachel. Did it matter to him which girl... He ended up marrying. And, and I think that the same thing applies here. There's a reason that God identified a day. He identified a day because it mattered to Him. And for us to say, ah, I mean, you know, one in seven doesn't really matter, is a little bit uh, foolhardy on our parts, I think. If God says it matters, then it should matter. He didn't say, remember a seventh day. He said, remember the seventh day. And I think the reason that, that this is significant is because God's relationship with us is not a, just a legal thing where we, um, you know, we say, please save us, and he stamps our records clean, and then, and then we get to go to heaven, and we get a mansion, and we get to lay down with lions and, you know, never die and not have any pain. Like, that's not the story in the Bible, no matter who tells you, that's not the story. The story is that God loves us so much that He gave his, his own life so that we could live with Him, and that He would be our God and He would dwell with us, and that He made rooms in His mansion so that we could live with Him. The story in the Bible is a story of relationship, and when we look at relationship, there's a issue of loyalty that's always involved. Over and over in the Old Testament, you have Israel being identified as a woman, and this woman ends up being a prostitute. God gives her everything that she needs, and she goes out and does her own thing. And, uh, and that is what we would identify as disloyal. If you're married to somebody and you go out and, and sleep with somebody else, that is a problem, right? And, and so God, He sees this group of people... And and he says, I want you to be mine, my own special people, my bride. And he invites them to a test of loyalty, not unlike the test at the Garden of Eden. The one where it says that there's this tree, please don't eat of it. And then when Adam and Eve did eat, they demonstrated disloyalty to God. They said, we're going to do this ourselves. Forget you, God. And then they ran away from God in fear. And I think that what we have at the end of time is, a, is a, a subject of worship. And God says, do you love me? Do you want me? Not, not the gods of the pagans, not the gods of stuff that you make, but the creator God. Do you want me as your God? And he says, if you do, then here's a simple test of your loyalty. Please honor this request. That you rest on my Sabbath day. And and when we do, when we say, sure, I want your name written in my forehead, I want your law imprinted on my heart, then, then we say to the universe, we say to everybody around us, the God of heaven, the God of creation is my God. But I was told that the reason we keep Sunday is because it's the Lord's day, you might say. And uh, I can understand that. There's one place in the Bible that says the Lord's Day. It's Revelation chapter 1. Interesting that it's in Revelation. It says this, And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, let's be honest. That never says anything about the first day of the week. It doesn't say Sunday. It simply says the Lord's Day. And it's true that Christians in the 170s or so, and uh, as early as about 170, they started calling Sunday the Lord's Day. Some, some of them did. Um, but the question is, what does the Bible tell us? Because um, we can look around and find Christians that murder people. I know a, a guy who claims to be a Christian um, who ended up um, in, in a prison in the, the Spokane area for killing about 13 women. Is he a Christian? Just be, you know, and should other Christians kill other people? No, no, no. That, just because Christians do it doesn't mean that that's a good thing to do. So what does the Bible say? That's the question we have to ask. And here's what the Bible says. Matthew twelve eight tells us, The Son of Man is Lord of which day? The Sabbath day. And then in Ezekiel, he says, Hallow my Sabbaths. He's identified them possessively, my Sabbaths. And they will be a sign between you and me that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So which day is the Lord's day, according to these verses? The Sabbath is. And then you can see it right there in Exodus. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, according to the Bible, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, which day was he in the Spirit or fellowshipping with God's Spirit and having this vision? The Sabbath day. The Sabbath is the Lord's special day. And the reason that you won't find a change is because God's moral law is a picture of His character, and God cannot change. And, th- and that's why you can't change even one part of the Ten Commandments. James 2 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder— you have become a transgressor of the law. I mean, James is clearly talking about the Ten Commandments, and he's saying, point blank, that you can't remove part of the law. You have to keep the whole thing. I mean, you, he doesn't say you have to keep the whole thing except for that Sabbath day thing. He just puts it all in one box and says if you break one, you break them all. Matthew 5.18 For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's no indication anywhere in the Bible that Jesus intended to change the Sabbath. But the question you might be asking after me having presented this whole subject Is, are you just making a mountain out of a molehill? Is this really that big of a deal? Surely this can't be that important. But I'm going to say yes. Yes, it is that important. It's a huge deal. Because it's about who you worship. And this is the most significant subject of prophecy. Who has your heart? In Ezekiel 20, God says this, Hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign. Remember Revelation's sign of God? They shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God, who is your God tonight. It's a matter of relationship, it's a matter of loyalty. But of course, we don't even know that Saturday is the right day, do we? Because, you know, the calendar has been changed. Have you heard that have you explored that you might have um, uh, looked into calendars and i want to just want to say that there is some confusion about calendars if you have a question about calendars please ask i'd love to explore that subject with you a little bit Um, but um, let me just say this the calendar has changed in and it's changed twice in october 1582 Um, we we moved from a Julian to the Gregorian calendar. This is the big change. And they discovered essentially that the calendar was behind um, because the calendar wasn't matching the solar year. Seasons were kind of starting to drift. And so they said, we've got to make some adjustments. And every calendar system throughout history has tried to do this in one way or another. And um, when we moved to the Gregorian calendar, they changed from, well, you'll see it right there. It was um, October 4th, Thursday, to Friday, October 15th. They took 10 days and just cut them out of the, of the month, trying to, to move the season back to where it was supposed to be. But they never changed the cycle of the week. Notice it went from Thursday to Friday to Saturday. It, it didn't go from Thursday to Monday. It went from Thursday to Friday, just like the week had always been. So we never changed that pattern. Um, There's uh, another change in England in 1752 to make England harmonize with this change in the Gregorian calendar, but again, they didn't touch the weekly cycle in that either. Um, And uh, there's a guy who went, uh, he he sent uh, a message to the Naval Observatory, uh, the U.S. Naval Observatory, and he asked, has anybody ever changed the days of the week? And here's what they told him there has been no change in our calendar in past centuries that has affected in any way the cycle of the week. So God's memorial still stands. And honestly, it's only in English that people have a problem understanding this. Go to any other language throughout the world, and you'll find that people don't call the seventh day of the week Saturday after Saturn. They call it some version of Sabbath. Look at this. You've got in Arabic asabd, and in Italian sabato, in Spanish sábado, in Armenian shapat, in Russian Sa- uh, subato or subota, and uh, in Prussian sabatiko. And I'm probably saying half of those wrong because I only speak English and only barely. So, but you get the idea. And you can go and there's hundreds of these. Just keep going through languages, and you'll find that the seventh day of the week is Sabbath. It's pretty clear. There's no question. Saturday is still the seventh day, and the seventh day is still the Sabbath. Now think about this carefully. The Sabbath was way back in the Garden of Eden when God blessed the day and sanctified it. And centuries later, the Sabbath was still there for the Jewish people, and it was included in the Ten Commandment moral law, not the ceremonial law. It was there even before the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 16, three chapters before we get to Mount Sinai, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're needing food, and God gives them manna every day of the week except one day. And it says, six days you shall gather manna, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Uh, Notice it was called the Sabbath before we get to Mount Sinai. They understood this before the law was, was given. And, and notice that this command, interestingly, not, not just command, but the miracle that happened on the weekly basis with the manna, was a way that God established the week. If they had ever had a problem between Adam and, and the, uh, the children of Israel, at this point, God establishes and for 40 years continues to establish the, the weekly cycle of the first through sixth day and then the seventh day Sabbath. We know that Jesus kept the Sabbath, confirming the cycle yet again, because if the, the cycle of the week had been off, certainly Jesus would have said, we got to tweak things here because you guys got the calendar messed up. But he doesn't. He confirms it. And he kept the Sabbath and, and said that it would be in effect long after he went back to heaven. We know that the disciples kept the Sabbath in the book of Acts, and the Bible also prophesies that we're going to keep the Sabbath in, in heaven too. Well, what I would like to say is after the second coming, because in Isaiah 66:22 it says, "'For as the new heavens and the new earth which I make shall remain before me,' says the Lord, "'so shall your descendants and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me,' says the Lord." The Sabbath has always been there, and the Sabbath will always be there. So, where did we get the idea that nobody needs it now? Follow me carefully. The book of Revelation describes, and Jesus in Matthew 24 also underscores the fact that there will be a big problem at the end of time, deception deception. It's, it's one of the biggest themes in Bible prophecy. A jealous dragon deceives the whole world, the Bible says. So if you and I find something that everybody's doing and it runs contrary to the moral law of God, should we be surprised? No, it just means that the Bible prophecy was right. It just means that the Bible knew it was going to happen ahead of time. And of course, the big question is, how in the world did this happen? And uh, tomorrow night, we're going to answer that question in some detail, but let me give you just a tiny glimpse of it as we, as we finish. In Daniel 7, Daniel predicted that there would be this, um, this power that uh, would intend to change times and laws. It's as simple as that. Someone without the authorization of God would, would make an intentional effort to change the day of worship. Um, Notice that this times and laws, um, what law refers to time? The only law that refers to time is the fourth commandment, the one about the Sabbath. So the question is, who did this? What if it was us? Remember in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says it's that there's a falling away from inside the church. The lawless one comes from us. Lawlessness is an issue of the Christian church. And so, What if it comes from us? I I have this interesting little book printed a while back. It's called A Catechism. um, And uh, it offers uh, this little bit of historical um, survey of Christian theology throughout the centuries. And uh, and so this on page 50 it says this. Which day is the Sabbath? And the catechism goes in a kind of question-answer format. Which day is the Sabbath? the author asks. And the answer, Saturday is the Sabbath. And then it asks the all important question why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? And the answer is we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. And it's really that simple. We made the change. It's like what Cardinal Gibbons said. This is from the the Faith of Our Fathers series and it goes like this. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The Scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. And he's right. That's what the Bible says. The Bible never changes the day, but we did. Without authorization, without God's permission, we just said, we should, we should do this differently than the Bible describes. Heinrich Holtzman says um, in his uh, book on canon and tradition, a history, um, he says how it happens. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of Scripture because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by command of Christ, but by its own authority. So God didn't change it because God doesn't change. We changed it because we change. In the last days before Jesus comes, there's this urgent message that goes to the whole world, and it says this, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel. That's a gospel that never ends, right? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Who is the subject of the everlasting gospel? Jesus is absolutely the creator God, and and John 1 makes it very clear that Jesus created. Without him, nothing was made that was made, it says. And it it keeps going, and it says, this gospel would be preached to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Well, which God? It it keeps going, and it says, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, this is the God we should worship, who made heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of waters there's a story of a boy who was adopted, and as a teenager, he wanted to know who his real parents were. And he was ingenuitive and and, uh, pretty bright, and so he he used some DNA evidence, and he figures out his father's real name. Now, why? What drives a young man or a young woman or um, whoever, finding that they're adopted, what drives them to uh, find their birth parents? It's identity. Who am I? Was I wanted when I was made? Why am I? What's my purpose? And, and God, he, he is the one who made us. He's the origin of our identity. And you know what he, He's done? He's not left it any... There, there's no like um, question about our origins, about our identity. God has left it on the calendar every week, a note saying, I made you. You are mine, and I love you, and I have given my life for you. Tonight, I don't have anything to urge. Uh, no, no appeal, no conviction or whatever. I just want to ask you to go and study it for yourself. Find it in God's Word. And, and, you know, we could look in all different places. The church's authority. We could look at, you know, a book by some famous author, some um, talented theologian. You could try to read something I've written. I haven't written very much. Um, And it doesn't really matter because it's all stuff from us. The source of truth is the revelation of God. And we find that in the Bible. And so go study it. Go ask these questions. See if it's true. And tomorrow night, we're going to dig just a little bit deeper into this. And uh, we'll see, well, I think, I think that you'll see something that will, that will revolutionize the world that you live in. I'd like to, to end with a special song. Uh, it's a song that's actually about Sabbath. And I want, want to invite DJ and Brigitte and Amanda to come forward and to sing this song for us. And as, as they sing, I just want to invite you to think. Think about, meditate on a bit the story of creation, and the story that God has said, rest.
1: Took six days and
2: But because you love my son
0: you. Let's pray. Father, in this time of earth's history, we know that the thing that you want most is to be on the throne of our hearts. Our minds are the battlefield, the battlefield that uh, Revelation describes. Our hearts are the the, uh, kingdom that you want to possess, and we just want to say, Lord, take us as wholly yours. Let us be your children. Write your name in our foreheads, and whatever it is that you have in your word, whatever thing about you that you want us to know, we pray that you would open that to our eyes and that you'd bring conviction to our hearts according to your word. I pray that as we go home tonight that we would be Bereans, those, uh, those people that Paul commended for going home and not not uh, dismissing or criticizing what he said, but studying it out to make sure that what he said was actually so from your word. Please help us to be those Bereans that don't just take for granted or take for um, truth what I say, but actually go and study it for ourselves. And I pray as we do that you would reveal to us your truth from your word and make it plain. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Tomorrow night is, can you put up the next slide?